right, so getting started here, let's just consciously pray and ask Christ to be on the throne and fill us with His Spirit. So Brandon, why don't you pray and ask Christ to be on the throne? So we've done the funnel diagram all year long, so we're not even going to go through that again. If you missed it, go back and look at last week or any of the weeks before that where we went through it. But we wanted to end this semester by talking about the reality of the revival that we should expect to see in our lifetimes. And first I wanted to start by saying that Scripture indicates that there will be a revival in the last days. And there's some discussion about this in Christian circles about whether or not Scripture prophesies this or not. And I guess even before we get into scriptural prophecy, I want to mention that uh, just because something isn't prophesied in Scripture doesn't mean that it won't happen. Uh, so even if there was no Scripture saying this worldwide revival would happen in the end days, I can't think of any uh, Scripture that prophesied the First and Second Great Awakenings and other revivals in history. So the lack of prophecy wouldn't mean that God wouldn't work in great ways. We should always expect God to work in great ways. And But that being said, I think that Scripture does point to a worldwide revival in the end times, which we're in right now. Uh, Acts 2.28, Peter describes, or in Acts 2.28, it describes God's Spirit being poured out on all mankind in the last days. And Peter uh, discussed that and quoted from Joel 2.31 and and basically said that that was beginning then. But there are parts of that passage, both in Joel and in Acts 2, where if you read them, those are fulfilled in Revelation 6.12. In other words, even though the last days began on the day of Pentecost, they won't be fulfilled until until the very end days in Revelation. Good to see you, Malcolm. And so we know that that isn't... That, that hasn't come to an end yet. So in the last days, God's Spirit will be poured out on all mankind. Uh, it sounds like a pretty big revival to me. In Romans eleven twenty five through 26, it says, all Israel, be, all Israel will be saved after the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So in other words, the full number or the fullness of the Gentiles coming into salvation seems like a pretty dramatic event. And all of Israel being saved also seems like a pretty dramatic event. So once again, it looks like there's some strong scripture that supports the idea prophetically of an end time uh, worldwide revival. There are verses that might seem to indicate otherwise, or at least that people would use to indicate otherwise, like in Luke 18.8 where it says that it says when he returns will he find faith on the earth. And they've used that to say that when Christ returns there will not be many believers on this planet, which to me is not really a problem because most Christians believe that the second coming of Christ that that's referring to will happen sometime after the rapture. Nobody knows how far after the rapture, in which case you wouldn't expect a whole lot of Christians to be on the planet at that time. So it makes a lot of sense. You can read about the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, uh, and that precedes the millennial reign of Christ, which begins in uh, chapter 20. And both of that, but that, that comes after the rapture of the church, which you could read about in Matthew 24, 31, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. So, that being said, I think... Uh, it's scripturally prophesied that there will be this end-time revival, and I think it's something that we should expect. But even again, going back to this whole issue, even beyond just the prophecy in Scripture, we know that this is God's heart. Remember 2 Peter 3.9. Remember 1 Timothy 2.4. Remember Matthew 9.37 and 38. 
God's heart is that all men would come to know Him, that none would perish, that all would be saved. He said the harvest is right, but it's the workers that are few. And if the workers will just get in the harvest, I think we can assume from Scripture that the harvest will be plentiful. And so that being said, I believe that scripturally we should expect a worldwide revival. There are misconceptions about what that will look like. We'll hit some of those later. But it won't be every single person alive coming to know Jesus Christ, most likely. So when we say that, we we don't want everybody to think that every single person alive will come to Christ. Of course, that would be awesome, and that would be God's heart. But people also have their own free will to decide whether or not they'll trust Him. And Scripture says not everyone will. That being said, though, guys, that's what we should strive for. We have the opportunity for the first time in history to see a worldwide revival on this scale. Uh, That's never been possible before. Bill Bright talked about how you can fulfill the Great Commission. You should Google that. It's a great, great encouraging message on fulfilling the Great Commission in our lifetimes. And he gave an example about the moon landing in the the 60s. And he said one-fourth of the planet saw... Uh, our astronauts land on the moon. And he said, is God not four times as powerful as NASA? Of course he is. <laughs> and, if, and if one message could be broadcast live to 25% of the world's population, why in the world could we not reach four times that many people with the gospel of Christ in our lifetimes? This is not a far-fetched idea. If you put that maybe in modern terms, six years ago Facebook started. And in the last six years it has grown to a point where now... of the world's population is an active user or are active users on Facebook. And 50% of those, so about 5% of the world's population is on Facebook every single day. So why can't we, the body of Christ, with the mind of Christ, come up with a way to reach even more people in an even greater way than Mark did with Facebook? I'm sure that God can make it happen. So world revival is mathematically and logistically possible for the first time in history. Transportation, globalization, communication, technology, the internet, social networks, all those have created a situation where the first for for the first time in history we really could see the world one for Christ. And so my question is what are you going to do with this opportunity? It's the first realistic opportunity in history to reach the entire world for Christ. Will we do it or not? On August 12, 1944, the Allies nearly surrounded the German 7th and 5th Panzer Armies during Operation Cobra. This is true. General Omar Bradley described the situation saying, and this is a quote, This is an opportunity that comes to a commander not more than once in a century. We are about to destroy an entire hostile army and go all the way from here to the German border. They had the opportunity to all but win the entire war in that very moment. General Patton's 3rd Army began to close the 20 25-mile gap, but Bradley, now second-guessing himself, ordered Patton to stop at Argentan. Bradley, along with Field Marshal Montgomery, who slowed the Canadian advance, and other commanders left the Falaise Gap open for 10 days, allowing 100 to 240,000 German troops and 30,000 vehicles to escape. They could have closed it off and effectively won the war, but they let these soldiers escape along with their vehicles. Colonel H.R. McMaster described it this way, Patton was biased towards seeing the opportunities. Other commanders were biased towards seeing the dangers. That's kind of where we're at today. Are we going to be biased towards seeing opportunities or biased towards seeing dangers? Finally, on August 21st, the gap was closed, and the remainder of the German army, which hadn't yet escaped, was obliterated. 15,000 German soldiers were killed, 50,000 were captured, and over 500 German tanks were lost. But remember the 240,000 that escaped. 
This finally ended the Battle of Normandy, and France was freed within days. After the war, Allied commanders agreed that waiting to close the gap had been a colossal mistake. We as the body of Christ find ourselves in a similar situation today. We have an opportunity like never before in history. Some of us are going to be biased towards seeing that opportunity, I believe, because of the Holy Spirit in us, who is very aware of that opportunity. Others are going to be biased to see the potential dangers. And they're going to say things like, don't be too bold and don't share too boldly and, uh, you know, make friends first with people before you share with them. I want to encourage you, revival is imminent. We need, to be, uh, we need to be biased towards seeing the opportunities. So what is revival? We talked a little bit about the misconceptions. It doesn't mean every single person alive is going to be saved. Uh, it, and here's a big, big, big thing to remember. Revival is not a Christian carnival that comes to town. Right? A lot of, a lot of Christians think, there's the Toronto revival, there's the Florida revival, there's the this revival. And most of those, are, even by definition of Scripture, are not revival. They are not based in true repentance. They don't have, as their evidence, Christians living according to God's word and multiplying and fulfilling the Great Commission, seeing new salvations and discipleship. Most of them end with nothing more than some excitement about controversial issues, and they go no further. True revival is a sustained and unhindered work of God in Christians first that results in them becoming the ambassadors that God's called them to be, right? So it has to start with us. You can't revive something that's dead. God can only revive Christians that are already alive, but lethargic, right? So you must be alive to be revived. In Psalm 80, verse 18, it says, Revive us, and we will call on your name. And in Psalm 85, 6, it says, Revive us, and we will rejoice in you. These are just references to believers that are asking God to revive them. Revival needs to start with us. Again, it's that sustained and unhindered work of God. And that results in true repentance, transforming believers, which then results in saving the lost and discipling new believers. It has to start with us, though. 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins with the family of God. And it's time where, where we as believers get in line with what God is doing worldwide. That would be true revival. And it would create a lot of multiplication towards even more revival. So why isn't revival happening? Why is it getting stopped? Uh, and I want you guys to really get this. God doesn't withhold revival. Have you ever prayed, God, bring revival? I used to catch myself praying, God, bring revival. And I realized, and this sounds sacrilegious, but revival almost has less to do with God than it does with you. I mean, it's all God. But here's, here's the sense in which I say that. God's not the one withholding, but it's sinful Christians preventing. And as soon as we can start walking in obedience to Him, He will work. It's not that He has to start working, He already is. We just have to get in line with what He's already doing. So revival isn't brought... But revival is catalyzed by Christians getting obedient to him and his great commission. Right? Revival doesn't happen because too many Christians are sitting around waiting for revival to happen. If we get off our butts and quit waiting, it would start happening. So God doesn't withhold revival, we prevent it. So worldwide revival is already happening. And you guys have heard us say these, quote, these stats before. But 34,000 people a day are coming to Christ in South America. 28 to 37,000 a day are coming to Christ in China. 23 to 25,000 come to Christ every day in Africa. 16,000 Muslims come to Christ every single day. Guys, 174,000 people a day are coming to Christ. Those are all evidences of the body of Christ in those countries actually making a difference. They've been revived. They're on fire for God. They're making a difference. They're putting the Great Commission into practice, and they're seeing fruit. And the same could be true here. 
just as one of my favorite revival stories goes, in South Korea around the turn of the century, it was a Buddhist nation. Today, the UN has classified it as a Christian nation, has the largest Christian church in the world, right, with nearly a million members, if I'm not mistaken, in one church. That is the result of God working in his body, they being obedient to his call, and seeing their entire nation transform for him. So we've been called and strategically placed here for this very time. 2 Corinthians 5.20, you are his ambassadors. Jesus gave us the third greatest commandment in Matthew 28, 18-20, and we've read this a million times this semester. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, in 1 Kings 18... Elijah performs arguably the greatest miracle in in history. Well, God performs it through Elijah, right? Calling fire down on this sacrifice. And after this, Elijah says to the people, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And I think we each need to come to that same conclusion and answer that same question about the Great Commission. If, If he is God, I need to follow him. And I need to fulfill his Great Commission in his power. I need to be obedient to what he's called me to. So do you really believe that God could use you to catalyze world revival? Just you, right? Well, I mean, obviously you have to have a body of Christ around you, but do you believe that you can be a a player in this, that you could have a role in catalyzing worldwide revival? I believe you can. In Mark 9, 24, Jesus asked this, this boy that had a demon, he asked his father if he believed he could heal him. And the father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think we need to get to that point where we say, God, I know you can do this. I know you could reach the whole world in my lifetime. I believe it, but help me with my unbelief because it's so hard sometimes to see the real picture. And again, going back to the beginning, some of these different people are trying to rationalize away the fact that God wants to work in big ways and saying he won't work in big ways. I think trying to affirm their own unbelief instead of taking that unbelief to God and saying, God, we know your heart is to win all men to you, and I'm going to be a part of that and expect that. I'm going to work expectantly, trusting you to do great things, right? Second Timothy 2, 3-4 through 4, talks about soldiers obeying their commander. Uh, guys, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to share that in a minute, but... I can't say no to my commander. I can't say no to my Lord, right? His commands are not optional. So the people around you are desperately hungry for Jesus. We've talked about some of these verses before, so I'm not going to go into them again. But the moral depravity that you're looking at all around you is just evidence that people need Jesus and they're looking for him. The hotter the desert, the thirstier they're going to be. People are spiritual, spiritually thirsty and you have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Okay, all of... Christendom, it seems, or the majority of it is trying to tell you, quit, stop up the living water, right? Don't offend people. Try to be nice. Don't don't come at them too hard. And what I want to encourage you with is in Numbers 13, uh, there was an option to believe the ten lying spies or the true, true spies, right? And your eyes, mind, heart, all these things are being lied to by Satan in this world. And I want to encourage you, believe the truth that the world is desperately hungry for Jesus. So we've been disobedient to the third greatest commandment far too long. If we don't have a heart for the lost, then we don't have a heart for God. It's that simple. Uh, The main reasons people don't share, pride, fear, doubt, uh, all these different things, living lives defeated by sin, fighting to survive versus fighting to win, focused on the temporary and eternal, uh, not on the eternal. And mainly, most Christians haven't truly died to themselves. 
and picked up that cross daily and said, I'm going to be your disciple and follow you in whatever you've called me to. Luke 9, 23 through 24, I must die to myself, lose my reputation, and be a fool for Christ, right? I must be willing to be a fool for him. Tozer puts it this way, in every Christian's heart there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, but insist Christ do all the dying. We doom ourselves to shadows, weakness, and spiritual sterility. See, if we want to get past that spiritual sterility to where we actually see multiplication happening and revival happening, we have to die to ourselves and be willing to live the life that he's called us to live. So revival starts here now, and I'm going to give you an acronym for how you personally can be involved in the Great Commission and how you personally can catalyze the Great Commission for the rest of your lives. And as I start this acronym out, it's going to be the ACTION acronym. I'm going to start it a little higher. As we start this acronym out, I wanted to say it's been said there are three types of people. Uh, People that make things happen, people that watch things happen, and people that ask what happened. If you want to be somebody that makes things happen for God, you need to have a plan of action. You can't just wing it. You have to have a strategy. And then you have to work that plan out in the power of His Holy Spirit. This action plan, I think, is a plan that will help you fulfill and catalyze the Great Commission in your lifetimes. So A stands for Acknowledge God's Call. Acknowledge God's call. Alright? Part of that is realizing that the lost truly are lost and that Jesus truly is the only way like he claimed in John 14.6. I need to agree with that and admit it and be convinced of it. Second of all is admitting and agreeing with the reality that they're hungry and that they're searching for a Savior. That every single person alive is being drawn to Christ like Jesus himself said in John 12. Bill Bright put it this way. He said, most importantly, you need to remember that God commanded you to fulfill his great commission. Again, quoting 2 Timothy 2, 3-4, but how a commanding officer obeys his com- or how a soldier obeys his commanding officer, right? Because he wants to please him. And he doesn't get entangled in earthly matters. He doesn't get entangled in all these other affairs of life. But he's focused diligently on the plan that God has called him to. Uh, interestingly, we should remember that 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 comes right after what? 2, 2. This verse about multiplication, right? So, uh, so as we as we think about this multiplicational process, we really need to remember this in the context of our commanding officer having called us to do this process till the day we die, and then realizing that we are going to do that and being committed to that regardless. Right. So I need to acknowledge his call. I need to be committed to his call. I need to be a true disciple. That's part of the call, right? I need to first take up my cross, or his cross, and follow him. I need to be a true disciple. Bill Bright said, like begets like. That's a biological law. And he said, if you're not being a true disciple, then there's no way you can make true disciples, right? So if I want to fulfill the great commission, I need to be committed to Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I need to have the right heart. I need to be motivated by love. 2 Corinthians five fourteen. Coincidentally, uh, right before it talks about being his ambassadors, right? It all comes back to intimacy with him. And that brings us to the next part of the acronym. C stands for connect with God. Okay, and I put and be empowered by 
His Spirit. Because you cannot do this on your own. If you're connecting with Him and being empowered by His Spirit, you will be able to fulfill the Great Commission. Acts 1.8 talks about fulfilling the Great Commission or being... um, being powerful in evangelism and reaching all the ends of the earth out of that place that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? So I need to connect with Him. And T stands for, going on to T, it says train yourself and others. Alright? So, things like this class, keep doing these till you die, and other ones. And don't just take them, but teach them, right? My hope is that you guys would be teaching this class next semester, the next semester after that, and that you'd be training others to be involved in this battle. Don't accept the status quo. Don't ever accept that because my church is this way, that's okay, it's always going to be that way. Don't accept that because this ministry is okay, that or where it's at, it's always going to be that way. Don't accept those things as okay. Always be willing to rock the boat and to challenge others to get the training they need to get in the fight. And just a note about training is if people aren't teachable, and you're going to encounter this, especially when you're trying to do evangelism and discipleship, get them in the action enough to create some teachability, right? The second they you take them out sharing or something like that and they realize that they can't share, they're going to get real teachable really fast, right? Uh, again, Bill Bright says, think beyond your local strategy towards the global strategy. So you, you have to have a strategy that you're training yourself and others to fulfill here, right? For us, it's here at Fort Lewis College. And then maybe outside of Fort Lewis College, it could be the city of Durango, right? Because we're encouraging local leaders and churches to fulfill the Great Commission in the city of Durango. This summer, we had some uh, citywide outreaches and citywide prayer, prayer times and things like that. Uh, but then even beyond that, we need to be having a global perspective, right? And realizing from this little area, God will use us to reach the whole world. And we've seen that with exchange students coming to Christ and and other things like that. But have a global strategy that comes out of your local strategy. But start here first. This is where we start and this is where we're committed first. Okay, T would be intercede. Big fancy word for fervent prayer. Intercede, right? Intercede intentionally and specifically. Remember the divine order, right? Talked about we talk about we talk to God about people and then to people about God. Uh, prayer makes me who I need to be for revival. Every revival in history is based out of prayer. If you look back historically, they all start in prayer, right? And prayer, I think that doesn't have so much to do with. We start praying and then we force God's hand. I think that's a wrong view that people have of prayer and revival. They see that prayer is always tied to revival and then they think, well, when we pray, we're pushing God towards revival. Well, again, God's not withholding. So that's an inaccurate view of how prayer is related to revival. What I think happens is when I pray, I get God's heart and I become the kind of person that God can use for revival, right? Isn't that true? When you pray, you get God's heart for the lost. When you pray, you become the kind of person God wants to use. And then he begins to use you. And then the people that are praying with you, they become the right person, the right people too. And then revival happens in us who are Christians. And then we begin being who God's called us to be, reaching those around us, right? So pray for opportunities, guys and expect those opportunities and then make the most of those opportunities. Colossians 4, 5. And then, finally, remember, have a top 10 list that you're praying for. And then far more than that, commit yourself to a progressively deep prayer time every single day with God. And then invite others to pray with you. Others from your ministry and then expanding outwards. Others from other ministries, right? We need to be developing a team of prayer 
for the Great Commission, right? For our city. Okay, outreach throughout your sphere of influence would be O. So outreach throughout your sphere of influence. Uh, every person on your block, your office, your classrooms, etc., be ready to reach throughout your entire sphere of influence. Be committed to a personal strategy again. So this action acronym is an, is a plan, or is, a, is an action plan, so to say. And here is your personal strategy. And we're going to talk about that for a minute, and it's really important. Bill Bright said, go minus plan minus action equals dream. Did you get that? So he put it this way. Go... Minus plan, minus action, equals dream. So if I want the Great Commission to happen, but I don't go, and I don't plan, and I don't put it into action, it's nothing but a dream, right? It's nothing but a dream. But he says, going with a plan, so go plus plan, and putting it into action, equals success, right? Go plus plan plus action, equals, or actually, how did he word it? It equals reality, right? So it's not a dream, but it's reality. And you'll actually fulfill it, right? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time it's been said. So go plus plan plus action equals reality. Now thinking about that, Jesus had a plan. In Acts 2.23, it says Jesus saved us according to God's plan, right? To, to God's eternal plan. So, and when he came here, Luke 19.10, he came to seek and to save the lost. He had a strategy and he was going after that strategy. Paul had a personal strategy too. In Acts 17.2, it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue and started reasoning with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He's going into city after city after city, and you can read in, in the chapters coming up to Acts 17, and that's talking about I think Acts 17 is Thessalonica. He comes into Thessalonica, and he begins doing exactly what he's done in every city up till now, even when he got ran out of town. Then he gets run out of town there, and he goes to Bree, and he does the same thing. He gets run out of town there eventually by the Thessalonians. He goes to Athens, does the same thing, right? He continues this process. And we even see it in, in chapters later, like in 19, in Ephesus, to where the whole city is opposing him, still doing the same plan. So he continues to do the same plan in even other cities, right? So Paul had a personal strategy, and he didn't let opposition stop him from it. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has a plan for you, too. Right? God has a personal plan for you, too. Uh, he's prepared good works beforehand that you should walk in them today. So God has a plan for you. So now you need to discover what that plan is and get it written down on paper. Get a strategy at least, maybe not every detail, but written down on paper for how you're going to re reach your sphere of influence and then how you're going to expand from there. What is your personal plan? Right. Once you have that plan for your life laid out, commit to investing your time, talent, and treasure in it. Bill Bright was real clear about uh, investing your time, talent, and treasure in that plan, which was interesting. I always thought that kind of phrase was coined by Randy Alcorn, and then I'm listening to this message that Bill Bright shared back in the 60s, and he's using that exact phrase. It's awesome. It's obviously straight from God's heart. So Bill Bright said, concentrate all your energy, your time, your talent, and your treasure on your primary calling. Right? Everything else comes secondary to that. But concentrate your energy on it. Take big steps of faith, guys. Take big risks for God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then trust the results to God. He will do it, right? Russ put it this way. If faith had a feeling, it would, it would probably be fear. So when you're taking these big steps, it will be fearful at times. And then remember this. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6 through 6 says that we're not competent in ourselves for this calling. 
for this task. But he has made us competent for this. So when you think about this plan of outreach that God's called you to, you're not competent for it. But he is. And like we always say, I'm pretty sure you don't have what it takes, but the Holy Spirit in you does. Xerxes put it this way. Uh, one of the greatest warriors in history, he said, only by great risks can great results be achieved. Isn't that good? Only by great risks can great results be achieved. So get yourself into situations where if God doesn't show up, you're dead. We always say that. Get yourselves into situations where if God doesn't show up, you're in big trouble, right? And then trust him to show up and do something great. So we're talking about aggressive evangelism and intentional discipleship until you die. Remember, love them into the kingdom, but also boldly share them into the kingdom, right? It's both and, not either or. Uh, We should share the gospel boldly. That was the theme of our retreat this last week in Ephesians 6.20. And then, guys, we can't help but speaking. Remember the disciples in Acts 4? They said, we can't help but speak about, about Jesus and what he's done in our lives. Jim Elliott put it this way. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. So, as you are committed to outreach, be committed to this plan, and then be committed to, uh, we put aggressive evangelism and intentional discipleship. Those are the two fundamental components of this multiplication that we're called to in 2 Timothy 2.2, right? And and in reality, if we do those things, we could reach the entire world, starting with just two of us, in 32 short years, right? So let's get committed to it. The final one is network with other believers. Because you can't do it alone. So network with other believers, right? Bill Bright put it this way. He said, plan for enough disciples to saturate every area of the globe. And he actually had a personal strategy for reaching literally every neighborhood in America and every country on the planet. That's pretty awesome. I don't think forward enough like that. But Bill Bright was talking about the 700,000 neighborhoods in America that had on average 100 people each. And how... They had them mapped out and a plan to try and put multiplying disciples in an area where every single person in each one of those neighborhoods, in each one of those metropolitan areas, in each one of the states of this entire country could be reached. And then he says, and then we plan to follow that exact strategy for every country in the world. And he died before seeing that come to reality, right? Just a few years ago. But in his lifetime, before he died, based on that strategy from the 60s, guys, Bill Bright, personally, in his ministry, saw over one billion people hear the gospel. So he didn't see the whole world hear the gospel, but he sure got about a fifth or a sixth of the way there before he died. That's pretty awesome. What if five or six more of us would come up with that same type of strategy and live it out, right? God could do great things. So let's go big for him. We must, And then he put it this way, we must be more interested in making disciples than getting decisions, more interested in spiritual multiplication than spiritual addition. So he said this evangelism is spiritual addition. But then when we go to the next step towards, uh, towards discipleship, that's spiritual multiplication. And he said that's got to be our main focus so that we can have enough strong disciples of Jesus Christ to actually be saturating the entire sphere of influence that we're in and beyond, right? And then, 
able to network with other believers, both those and even other believers, in such a way that we can encourage them towards the Great Commission as well. Alright, ultimately, 1 Corinthians 3.9, we're called to be co-laborers with God. Guys, this is a hardcore verse, but in Judges 5.23, it says, Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Now, obviously, we live under grace, but the challenge is still the same. God is calling us to come and help Him in this fight that, the, that, that God is in. There's a spiritual battle for souls, and we're called to come and help Him. Right, Ezekiel three eighteen through 20 says, When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his own sin, but you will have saved yourself, or his blood won't be on your hands. So how many people will I have to apologize to as they walk to an eternity in hell? I don't want that. I want to apply this personal plan and this personal strategy and see the people in my sphere of influence exposed to the gospel, having an opportunity, every single one of them, to make an intelligent decision for or against Jesus Christ. Right? John Wesley said, light yourself on fire and people will come from miles away to watch you burn. I want to be so passionate about Jesus that nobody in my sphere of influence could ever stand before God and say, he never told me, right? I want them to hear that, and I'm not there yet, right? So will you be all? Will you be sold out and all in, or will you live a life of fear, pride, passivity, lethargy, and apathy? First Corinthians four ten. Will you be a fool for Christ? That's the challenge. Will, will we all be fools for Christ? Right, guys. This is the adventure and the abundant life Christ promised in John ten ten. Bill Bright put it this way. I'm quoting a lot from Bill Bright because a lot of these main points came from this: uh, how you can fulfill the Great Commission talk that he did back in the 60s, and he modeled this better than anybody I know in history, right? And he put it this way, there are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Isn't that good? There are no happy, disobedient Christians, or there are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Romans 12.11 says, serving him is the key to having zeal. Right, and to having passion in this life. Guys, if I want to have passion in my walk with God, I need to be committed to this process of fulfilling the Great Commission. So, if you could be on the Super Bowl winning team this year, and it won't be the Broncos. Unbelievable. I couldn't believe They lost again yesterday in in pathetic fashion. They cannot win to save their lives. Wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to be on the Super Bowl winning team? If you, it takes some discomfort and some training and some sacrifice. But if you could, wouldn't you want to be on the Super Bowl winning team? I sure would. And we're in the fourth quarter of something far greater than the Super Bowl of all time, right? We're at the two-minute warning, and we need the body of Christ to step up. And it starts with us. I can't just say the body of Christ needs to step up. It starts with me stepping up and saying I'm personally committed to this, right? Tom Landry put it this way, and he was coach of the Dallas Cowboys years ago. He said uh, that the spiritual battle, the Great Commission, is similar to football in this way. There are 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest and 22,000 fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise. Isn't that crazy? It's the same way with the body of Christ, right? There are just a few workers in the harvest in desperate need of rest and tens of thousands of onlookers in desperate need of exercise, desperately needing to get in the action, guys. Right? So God just put you in the game. That's the, that's the challenge. God just put you in the game, and he wants you to be committed to winning this game till the day you die. 
not committed to just playing, but committed to winning this game and seeing it through. Uh, so remember, God doesn't withhold or bring revival. We prevent it. But we can start catalyzing it today. And just since we do have a few minutes, I'm going to run through one last time on video. Even though I said I wouldn't, I'm going to run through... funnel diagram, because I think this funnel diagram literally gives us such a good strategy for how we can literally fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime. Okay, so at the top, meet people. Can't even spell meet people. And we never stop coming up with ways to do that. We, we spent... A week talking about different ways to meet people at the beginning of this semester. And I think that if we continue to do that in many other ways, we'll continue reaching out to new people in the sphere that God has put us in. After that, we share the gospel with them, right? We get four different responses. I'm going to line them up a little bit differently. We get the not interested. We get the at the will pray. Or no, no, no. I'm going to put green fruit. Get the will pray and already Christian. Okay, the not interested. We just keep leaving them in the funnel. Keep inviting them to events, keep hanging out with them, keep sharing with them, but not investing tremendous energy until they come to that place where they're more interested, right? Makes a lot of sense. The green fruit we're going to do follow-up with. We're going to keep sharing the gospel with them because they're interested. That's what we spent the week after our two weeks on evangelism on, was how do you follow up with somebody after you've shared with them? Okay? After that, we're also going to do one-on-one discipleship. I want to encourage you. A lot of people are going to say things like, oh, there's nowhere in Scripture that you see a command to do one-on-one discipleship and all this sort of stuff like that. I would encourage you that, ultimately, this is Christ's example. This is the multiplication example that we're told about in 2 Timothy 2. right? And I think this is highly important that we would follow Christ's example in doing this personal personal evangelism and then personal discipleship. Doing that personal discipleship, and right alongside with it, we start to have lots of small groups. Because we need the four contexts, which are, well, number one, one one-on-one, small group, and then within the context, the weekly meeting, and then taking those people that are being discipled into evangelism. So we have the Jesus groups, the Jesus discussion groups, Right, where we're laying a foundation of who Jesus is and what he says and what he does and what he calls us to, but then also uh, allowing even these green fruit people to be involved there along with the Christians. Right? Anybody that, that wants to learn more about Jesus can be involved there. And hopefully this group is led by somebody that's personally discipling the Christians that are in this group and or doing follow-up, evangelistic follow-up with anybody that hasn't yet trusted Christ that happens to be in that group. That group usually will turn into a growth group, right? Okay. 
led by Malcolm over here, who is now discipling, and this should be comprised of Christians, because you can't grow with God if you don't have a relationship with God, okay? Who's now discipling each of these guys in this group and helping them grow as they go through this process. And remember, this leader all along doing this process is learning the is, is learning the best leadership training he'll ever get in his life. Because he's putting himself out there, he's taking a risk for God, he's having to confront insecurities, he's having to learn, he's having to grow, he's having to lead. All those things make this guy right here that's leading this growth group a strong leader in this Great Commission process. Eventually then, this turns into an action group. Right, an action group where, let's say Malcolm's been leading it all along. Here's Big M right here. He's leading it too. But now, these guys have been discipled for a while, maybe a year or two. They've been through this growth group. They've actually seen how all this works. And now they're learning how to do these same things, Right? So now we start to see some real multiplication happen as all these guys that were just participants over here are actually now leaders over here. Now they too are getting that same awesome leadership training and learning how to be multipliers in the Great Commission, learning how to share their faith, learning how to do discipleship, and learning how to lead effectively and help others learn how to lead effectively, right? And we actually start seeing real multiplication happening in a not too long of a time period. Aaron and I have only been in ministry for seven and a half years full time. And in the last seven and a half years, I think over 30 students from this ministry have gone into full-time ministry. That includes us too, right? So it's not just people that we've worked with, but it's people that were in the discipleship process the four years before those seven and a half. And in the last seven and a half, those students went into full-time ministry, right? But that's over 30 new people in full-time ministry, many of them in Muslim countries, foreign countries, many of them here in the United States, sharing their faith, applying this process worldwide. Now... Guys, remember, once we actually see this leadership development and this multiplication happening, we say that this whole process will die if it's not surrounded by agape, love, and unconditional acceptance. Right? It's in that context of true friendship, I'm going to put True friendship, fun, unconditional acceptance. All those epitomize agape, unconditional love. And it's in that kind of context that the body of Christ really grows. It's in that kind of context where we actually see authentic multiplication taking place. Taking advantage of every one of the tools we possibly can. We also talked about that this semester, just a couple weeks ago. But taking advantage of meetings, taking advantage of MP3s and other resources, taking advantage of the Internet and all that it offers as far as resources, but also communication, interaction, all these different things. Taking advantage of 
everything I own, my possessions, and putting it towards the Great Commission, taking advantage of buildings like the ranch, right? Like this room that we're in today. We don't own this, but we have access to it, and we're going to maximize that for the Great Commission. It's a tool in the process, right, guys? Taking advantage of retreats like we did this last weekend. Taking advantage of conferences. Taking, like DCC come up in three weeks. Taking advantage of our vehicles, I guess that fall under under um, under possessions. But just like Malcolm, like you did, coming down late to pick people up, to bring them back to the retreat, right? You're using your vehicle for the glory of God without, without any kind of regret. Anyway, so doing this multiplication process in the context of agape love, maximizing the tools so that we can maximize the Great Commission. If we will be committed to this process till the day we die, I really think, guys, following a personal strategy, especially a plan of action like we talked about today, and again, running through that, acknowledge the call, connect with God, uh, train yourself and others, intercede, and then uh, act. Outreach to your sphere of influence, and then network with other believers. If we'll apply that acronym in the context of this Great Commission process, we'll see the Great Commission accomplished in our in our lifetimes, I believe. Now, I want to close with just a couple of quotes. In The Gladiator, Russell Crowe said, I love this quote, don't you? He says, what's done in this life echoes for eternity. If we'll do this in this short life we have, we, it will echo for eternity, guys. We won't be in heaven for all of eternity regretting our misuse of the short life that God gave us on this planet. But rather, we'll be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, like Jesus, or like, like was told the good servant in Matthew 25, right? So let's turn this world upside down, and then let's trust that God really can do great things. Going back to the, to the naysayers in the beginning that say it isn't possible, guys, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than anything we can ask or think. And he's able to do that in the whole world in our lifetimes, guys. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So do it up, guys. My hope is that in eternity we'll be having a party remembering this class that we did this semester and the fact that we each lived our lives to fulfill the Great Commission for the rest of our lives. So let's pray and give it to God and go big. Malcolm, will you pray and just close us out? Dear Lord, I just thank you for this time. Thank you for Nate's commitment to do this and the, the intentional in it and just investing time in us and, and more than just us, like putting it on the internet and such. But I thank you for you, Lord, and how amazing and big you are and how you will go disciples of the world, Lord, through us. Pray that we can just go from here today and realize that you want to use us to to influence the, the whole world. Thank you and praise you. Amen.